Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm your New Books Network host, Cynthia Horn, and we are talking today with Dr. Nancy Adler, Professor of Memory, History, and Transitional Justice at the Neo Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies and the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Hello, Dr. Adler. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me about your recent edited volume with Dr. Anton Weiss-Vent. It is more timely than ever. Good morning, uh, Dr. Horn. It's uh, it's very nice to be invited to this program to be able to talk about what we consider uh, an unfortunately very timely book. By way of introduction, Dr. Nancy Adler is Professor of Memory, History, and Transitional Justice, a chair established by the NEOD, the University of Amsterdam, and the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Adler teaches in the MA program on Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Amsterdam and supervises PhD and postdoctoral research. Dr. Adler currently serves on the Academic Advisory Board of the Simon Wiesenthal Institute, the International Advisory Board for the Journal for Genocide Research, the Steering Committee of the Historical Dialogues, Justice and Memory Network, and is chairman of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. She has authored or edited many... Chairman of the Academic Working Group. Academic Um, Working Group. Excuse me. Excuse me. It's all so impressive to our readers and listeners. She has authored or edited many peer-reviewed articles chapters, books, and volumes on transitional justice and memory. Here I highlight just a few. Keeping Faith with the Party, Communist Believers Return from the Gulag in 2012, The Gulag Survivor Beyond the Soviet System in 2002, Victims of Soviet Terror, The Story of the Memorial Movement, 1993, Understanding the Age of Transitional Justice, Crimes, Courts, Commissions, and Chronicling in 2018. And with Selma Leisdorf, I might have gotten that wrong, Tapestry of Memory in 2013, just to name a few. It is her recent co-edited book with Dr. Anton Weisvent, The Future of the Soviet Past, the Politics of History in Putin's Russia in 2021, to which we turn our attention today with much joy. Uh, So to start, this volume is dedicated to the legacy of Arseny Roginsky, one of the founders of Memorial. Can you tell the readers a bit about how his work with Memorial has informed your scholarly studies and research questions? Thanks so much uh, for starting with that question. Indeed, he's been a very significant figure uh, in my life as a researcher and actually 
as a human being. Um, I met him in 1989 at Memorial's first international oral history conference. As you said, he was a, he was founder of Memorial, chairman of Memorial. He was also a former dissident, a former prisoner, uh, was born in the Gulag zone. Um, and uh, I met him in 1989, but actually I first heard of him in 1981. I was a student at Barnard and uh, he was arrested then uh, for forging papers to get into an archive. And uh, Columbia at the time tried to hire him as visiting professor so that he could avoid being incarcerated. It didn't work, but I remember very clearly the story of Arseniy Raginsky in 1981. And he uh, was sent to the Gulag five camps in four years. He got out in 1985 and started to um, to gather materials and regroup with the former dissidents in what would later become Memorial, Victims of Stalinism, manuscripts on the Soviet terror. Uh, so when we met in 1989 at this oral history conference, I, I have a, a photo I love to show my students about uh, how not to take an interview. And we're standing in the uh, hall of the Historical Archive Institute in Moscow, and I'm, I'm intimidated. I'm also very happy to be able to be interviewing this, um, this great man. Uh, and I've got a heavy Marantz uh, tape recorder uh, on my arm, and I've got a notepad on top of it. I'm trying to take notes, and he's standing in front of me eating an ice cream, sort of like, you know, okay, what are you doing here, and what do you know about our history? We got, we got, um, we progressed significantly after that. Uh, in, in, since 1989, um, I probably went to Moscow, Every year, more than once, uh, we talked about Memorial. We talked about his personal history. Um, he invited me to two um, conferences sponsored by uh, the Yeltsin Fund on the uh, on the history of approaches to Stalinism. I had him in several events at our institute in Amsterdam. He really became a a uh, a guide, a mentor. Um, and he taught so much to me about was what was emerging as civil society in those days. Uh, he was deeply inf influential, well, not just for me, but also for most of civil society. And one of the very important points that he made was that um, it was easy to talk, at, some, at a certain point, it was easy to talk about, about victims and about crimes, but not about perpetrators. And it really became one of his life's mission to try to bring that consciousness of what the Soviet leaders, the 20th century Soviet leaders did to their own people into public consciousness. So he tried that. Um, he also fought uh, from the beginning uh, for the survival of Memorial. And in our last interview in 2016, he said, uh, well, it wouldn't be hard to liquidate Memorial. They could just kill us with fines. Um, the, the state had been trying to financially choke Memorial. And so Memorial uh, obviously uh, ended up being choked with fines and choked with 
legislation. And just to, to, to finish on this point with Roginsky, and probably I'll, I'll return to him later, um, I have very mixed feelings uh, about the great honor that Memorial was awarded the the Nobel Peace Prize, co-awarded the Nobel Peace Prize uh, in 2022. I am very sad that he was not here to see it, but it also coincided exactly with the ending of Memorial. In fact, on the day the prize was granted, uh, they were at a Moscow court uh, fighting with the authorities to keep the building that was their own property. So there's also a side of me that is glad that he didn't live to see that. Wow, that is so moving. I have to say, I have goosebumps just thinking about his impact. Um, and we're going to come back to this theme of international influence being labeled foreign agents, right? The othering of attempts to name the perpetrators, not just acknowledge the victims. So thank you so much for sharing that with our, with me today. I I, uh, I can't promise I won't return to Boginsky himself. Uh, he, he tends to come up a lot. <laughs> That's great. Uh, the, um, so let's turn directly to the volume and the chapters in particular, we see Stalinism playing a central role. It's treated as more than Stalin the person. It encompasses his larger legacies. Can you elaborate a bit on the use of Stalin and Stalinism in this volume as a historical, political, and sociological concept? Indeed, uh, that was also, in fact, a question of the of the referees who who peer reviewed the manuscript, and that's why uh, we we uh, did a little more explicit uh, thinking about this. Um, we consider that uh, Stalinism is the default uh, authoritarian political culture, not indeed just the personal evil of Stalin, but actually the larger phenomenon, the system. And one could argue, as we do, and as I think the contributions do, that this could be observed from the very beginning of the Soviet period until the end. And arguably, its consequences are are deeply entrenched today. So uh, this was the definition, the memorial definition of Stalinism, and we adapted it because we uh, we found it entirely appropriate. And sometimes it's conflated with the crimes of the Soviet past, and sometimes it is just the crimes of Stalinism. That's a, a, a bit of a separate issue. But um, I think it's much more helpful to think of Stalinism in the in the broadest sense of the word. Fantastic. I think that helps direct the reader as they're thinking about each of the chapters and the way they come together, since there is a, a blending of Stalin the person and Stalin the institution. Um, you note in the introduction the revival of all things Soviet and many things Stalin under Putin. I was very surprised to see the increase in national popularity of Stalin over the past few years. You note that in 2016, approximately 40% of people rated the Stalin era more good than bad. And in 2017, 46% reviewed him with respect and enthusiasm. 
this this blew me away. These these increasing numbers. Um, I would like to dig into this a little bit. I'd like to explore some of the top down and bottom up processes that are tapping into Stalinism and contributing to the revival and repurposing of this glorified past. So maybe to start, it is well noted that Putin has emphasized certain enduring Soviet legacies and elements of Stalinism to advance his state rebuilding efforts. But the pro-Stalin narrative is not monolithic. And I think that might come as a surprise to some readers. You note that there have been government efforts to tap down elements of Stalinism, including uh, efforts by Medvedev and the Russian Duma. We also see the opening of a Gulag Museum over this time period, draft proposals against the revival of Stalinism, and efforts to memorialize victims, including Putin's own inauguration of the Wall of Grief in Moscow to victims of Stalinism, which almost feels ironic at this point. Can you help us make some sense of the internal divisions over memory within the Russian state leadership? You are right uh, to, uh, to point to the ambiguities. There are many, indeed. For example, at the same time, um, a pro-Stalin propaganda was criminalized. One could easily see Stalin's face on buses and an increasing number of statues. Uh, the state um, used Stalin where it was helpful. So in, in some of these surveys where we see his popularity increasing, we can also see more specific questions that were directed at, yeah, for example, that um, the accomplishments uh, um, under Stalin were considered more important than, than the losses or, or, or the excesses. So the message somehow was getting across, considering uh, what the polls were saying about his increasing popularity. Now, the state, um, the state continued something that was an old Soviet practice. Um, when, and if I go back for a moment to uh, the early days of Memorial, they had a lot of trouble from the Soviet regime. And uh, I found proceedings from a 1988 Politburo meeting where Gorbachev said, what is this memorial? He was afraid that the story of the past was going to get out of control of the hands of the party. So he wanted to keep memorial limited to regional divisions under party control. Fast forwarding to Putin, um, taking over, um, let's say, co-opting the memory of Stalinism, the monument, uh, the large monument in Moscow to uh, uh, victims of Stalinism, on, on the uh, sign in front of it, it says, thanks to Vladimir Putin. Um, and it's, it's, it doesn't talk about perpetrators. It, um, whatever, what's on the plaque is as, as if it were a natural catastrophe. It is the state taking control of the narrative. So it limits what the discussion will include. And I have to say that's also true. <clears throat> you mentioned the Gulag Museum. Now, the Gulag Museum is is quite impressive indeed. It's Moscow City-sponsored, read, state-sponsored. Um, 
it does have a lot of important, let's say, information about individual victims. It doesn't really uh, uh, suggest that anything about past human rights violations being linked to present human rights violations. So it's, it's a controlled narrative that does recognize victims. As I said, victims are allowed to be recognized as long as you don't get too far into the Uh, as long as you don't get into the perpetrator discussion, period. Now, there's been um, there's been a change uh, in this um, narrative. Uh, around 2005, um, the state started taking increasing control of the narrative when Putin said the collapse of the Soviet Uni Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. After that, Uh, in 2008, uh, textbooks had to start being refashioned for a different image of Stalin. Let's let's focus on what we did in the 1930s, not on the crimes of the 30s, but the accomplishments, the industrialization, um, the eradication of illiteracy. And of course, when we look to the 40s, we're going to look to victory in the Second World War, in the Great Patriotic War. So the state has... Um, The state cracked down on Memorial and at the same time took over elements of remembering Stalinism. It was a simultaneous process. Um, Medvedev, uh, who, who, uh, who was president from 2008 to 2012, was willing to have uh, to help, let's say, allow a database on victims of Stalinism, but absolutely not any judgment on Stalinism, because he said, who, who would be in a position to judge that? No president or court. So the state has had, um, has not ignored it. Um, they've done something that's much more sinister. They've, they've co-opted it, this memory. It seems like a risky strategy because you allow parts of the memory and you're hoping to co-opt and control it. Uh, It's almost a little like a Pandora's box, though. It is a Pandora's box. Um, and it is risky, but um, not entirely risky, because the control can go so far as to uh, close an organization that has been the most authoritative source uh, on uh, uh, the crimes of Stalinism. And uh, that is a way to take complete control For example, the archive, the Memorial Archive, thousands of uh, dossiers on victims of Stalinism. It's not clear um, what the government crackdown will mean for that. So you can actually control history. You can't control what we know. And of course, there's the Internet, but you can also you can um, you can arrest historians. You can you can assassinate journalists. There there are very Um, very uh, sinister ways of of um, keeping a lid on history, and we're seeing a lot of those being implemented right now. How diabolically savvy of Putin to get his name on the recognition while erasing agency. Uh, one has to... Um, uh, Um, one has to appreciate 
the significant involvement of Putin himself in this national narrative reconstruction. So uh, we've talked a bit about the state. I found myself getting pulled into the state discussion. The bottom-up forces also contribute to this revival and repurpose. Authors in the volume detail the role of civil society groups like the Night Wolves, the popular use of Stalinist images on cars, and depictions of Stalin in cinema and theater, not just internationally, but but domestically. The Orthodox Church has played an outsized role in the process of reviving a certain interpretation of the past. What are some of the unexpected findings from the volume in terms of civil society actors and forces engaged in a revival of certain memories of the past? Well, um, a couple of things. Let me start with some of the unexpected findings. Some of the unexpected findings were actually um, that it became quite difficult for us to hold on to some of our original authors because of the political situation. That was, I guess, the most unexpected finding that we had in it. And it was, um, and um, we, we learned more and more about, uh, about the crackdown through that. This, uh, this book was originally, um, it emerged from a conference uh, that my colleague Anton Weisswendt held in 2016 called The Future of the Soviet Past. And he invited me as keynote speaker at that conference because I had written a 2005 article entitled The Future of the Soviet Past Remains Unpredictable. When I wrote that article in 2005, uh, there were some hopeful trends. And by the time of the conference in 2016, we saw a reversal of many of them. Now, at the conference, um, at least, no, not at least, just one of the uh, one of the speakers who was going to be a contributor to the volume was very upset with something I said in my keynote, and it was one of the things that I just mentioned now about uh, Putin's famous two thousand five uh, collapse of the Soviet Union statement. Uh, this. Uh, uh, conference guests said that um, we'll try to refashion that narrative and explain that um, Putin really was referring to the Russian speaking uh, uh, peoples in, in, uh, in different parts of the former Soviet Union, how they were being discriminated against. Anyway, we were, we, we were faced with a great dilemma right there about all the forces, even from very respected historians that were at play. Um, we also had uh, some of our historians pull out out of fear for their jobs. Uh, others were not allowed to travel to Russia after they started uh, working um, with us. And of course, one of our authors was from Memorial itself. So by the time by the time the volume came out, which was the end of last year, they were already actually liquidated. So that, there were some unexpected findings that were directly related to putting together um, the volume. You mentioned the uh, Orthodox Church and its outsized role. And if I go back to uh, Putin standing there at the Wall of Sorrow, at the monument uh, for, you know, at opening day, he's standing there next to Patriarch Kirill, 
very symbolic with the church, with the church's blessing, he's, he's opening this monument. And why does it work for the church? Why is the church such a powerful ally in this? Because the church is reinforcing the narrative of martyrs, that everyone was a victim. So the church makes, makes it very safe for, uh, um, to exclude the discussion on perpetrators. How interesting. We, we of course, see uh, a significant role for the church in Putin's war in Ukraine today as well. Indeed, we do. And as I said, this, they are allied in, in this uh, image of, of martyrs and victims and, well, being under attack, in fact. Yeah. The uh, chapter that engages the night wolves is particularly interesting to, uh, I think our readers might find, our listeners might find that interesting. Um, Your opening chapter starts with a Russian aphorism that I just couldn't resist. It's easy to talk about the present and future, but the past changes every day. Now, this one is delicious in many ways because it is a, a traditional Russian aphorism. And so I love this image about the usability and malleability of history. You also suggest the history of the Soviet past is a battleground in Russia today with contending forces. The volume explores elements of this, the way the Soviet past is actively refashioned, repurposed, and or discarded if it doesn't fit. At some points, you talk about fashioning a, quote, good future from a, quote, bad past. In some chapters, the authors illustrate efforts to expunge memories of repression. Uh, So not just not acknowledge them, but actively undermine those memories. In others, there's a reoccurrence of themes of triumph and victory from the past. Can you elaborate a bit on which components of the past are particular points of contestation and what that means for Russia today? Yeah, very good um, and very complex question. Of course, um, Russia is one of the, post-Soviet Russia is one of the most prominent non-cases of transitional justice. Uh, roughly speaking, transitional justice tries to create a good future out of a, out of a bad past by confronting the past through some, uh, uh, some array of, of legal and non-legal measures. Uh, in Russia, this was not done. Um, the, the only mechanism that even came close to actually uh, um, recognizing past crimes was uh, rehabilitation. It was a law that was put in uh, place in 1991 uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union that would allow victims to be exonerated, to be cleared uh, of, for crimes that they did not commit, and um, then they could get a few a few paltry privileges. Uh, so this this kind of non admission of guilt was the only transitional justice mechanism. So the past had to be reconceptualized. The bad past had to become a bright past, and that means, as I alluded to before, when we look to the '30s, we don't focus on the 
terror of the 30s. We don't focus on the three quarters of a million that were executed between 37 and 38. We don't focus on the millions that languished in the gulag. No, we focus on what they were building, the 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 great projects. We don't focus on the dead roads that led nowhere and, and have prisoners' bones buried under them. We focus on the projects that 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 led to great industrial industrialization and, and, and the mining of nickel and gold and and um, that narrative of triumph over uh, the, the, the uninhabitable wilderness. And then there's the narrative of the victory. The narrative of the victory um, in the Second World War, in great patriotic war, good against evil, became a unifying force. And it was easy to rally around that because that was, that was, uh, that was heroism. And that would be something that became a a, a real um, uh, a, any other interpretation than the than the interpretation that uh, the current regime wanted in the textbooks would become absolutely illegal. So from two thousand eight on, textbooks started to be refashioned uh, um, to basically um, whitewash the crimes of Stalinism, to whitewash Stalin, to to whitewash the gulag and to give a different way of, of, of interpreting those events. And teachers were instructed how to do that. Now, that's not to say that all teachers taught this. There, there, there was some freedom to, to teach what they wanted to teach, but many of them were also trained um, in the Soviet era. So they were, they were simply, um, they were acculturated to, to, to those narratives and to those norms. Um, and uh Putin did try to create a, a, a unified textbook that would focus on Russia being a great country with a great past, and that would be the narrative. The unified textbook uh, did not end up uh, coming to fruition, but but there are several, uh, several, and the most standard works uh, are, uh, um, they instruct teachers and they instruct pupils on, on how to remember the past, and indeed, um, the memory of the repression is uh, not emphasized. Interesting. I very much appreciate our discussion here about the history textbook revisions as, uh, in some ways, they can be used as tools of transitional justice to correct wrongs in the past by being accountable, recognizing and being accountable. But at the same time, they also allow for strategic instrumentalization of the past and the rewriting of those historical narratives. I can only imagine how much history textbook revision is going on right now regarding Ukraine and Russia's longstanding history with each other. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, textbooks would be a, a very... A useful tool um, as a transitional justice mechanism. If if we decide, okay, it's it's you know a trial uh, uh, it, much too complicated to even think of a trial and and truth commissions and and most of those implicated are no longer alive. Textbooks would would have been an important means. Um, and and uh, yeah, that's obviously going to be used to to achieve quite the opposite um, end. The thinking um, a little bit more about certain historical moments and memories, 
The book touches on central themes of the of anti-Nazism and the cult of the Great Patriotic War, as you've mentioned, as important and central to Russia's self-image and also the redesign of its self-image in light of the worst thing that's ever happened to Russia, the fall of the Soviet Union. In particular, the centrality of the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany is reoccurring in this volume. And it just leapt out at me as so important and timely for our understanding of Russia's relationship with Ukraine today. In particular, um, I was drawn to Kopasov's chapter in which he explores Article 354.1, the so-called Law Against the Glorification of Nazism, and Pfefferman's chapter, which explores the memory of the Holocaust and Russia's efforts to prevent Holocaust denial in Again, another almost ironic turn of the way Russia has co-opted these historical narratives. In short, uh, there is a significant and consistent engagement with anti-Nazism in the creation of Russia's self-image. Putin has used some of this rhetoric in the current war in Ukraine, talking about denazification and revisiting Ukraine's complicity with Germany during World War II, among others. Can you talk a little bit about how this historical memory in particular is used by Russia today? Well, what we are increasingly seeing is that the state has become the ministry of truth. These memory laws and historical commissions that are dictating um, how we are to remember the past um, and on on pain of incarceration if we want to remember it in any other way. Um, This has been coming for years. We should have seen the warning signals. We should have seen that um, the memory wars could turn into real wars. We we didn't see it coming, but we could have. Uh, In... um, Even, let's say, in 2016, the uh, director of the Russian uh, uh, State Archive was demoted for publishing a document um, that that debunked the myth of the uh, heroic stance of the Soviets in Moscow against the Nazis, Panfilov's uh, army. And uh, by trying to analyze what actually happened instead of the myth of what happened was a very dangerous thing to do. Um, When uh, Memorial uh, lost their appeal in February of this year, the court said that Memorial was involved in uh, also around this law, also around the foreign agent law, but around this law that they were, um, that they were fabricating uh, history around uh, Nazism and Stalinism. And the, the prosecutor said uh, their appeal was rejected. And the prosecutor said an organization tasked with pursuing the historical truth and honoring the memory of victims of political repression now aimed to falsify history and transform public consciousness from one that remembers the victors to one that repents for the crimes of the Soviet past. So um, any 
any discussion, any equivocation of Nazism with Stalinism was starting to be criminalized. This was also one of the reasons that Memorial was allowed to be shut down. On the 80th anniversary of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, uh, just a few years ago, uh, Putin said this was uh, the only strategically possible step, and it was deft diplomacy. We could see that coming. Uh, the the falsification of history was already enshrined in a commission in 2009 under Medvedev uh, that would review anything that would bring um, that that would show uh, Russia in an unfavorable light. And this has been gaining momentum. We just didn't think it was as dangerous as it ended up being. And uh, we always knew that history was deeply politicized. And if I come back to my first uh, interviews with Arseny Raginsky, when Memorial was just emerging, he said, no, no, we're not a political organization. We're a historical organization. Because the minute uh, you get that label of a political organization, they they, they really uh, were not allowed to exist as such. And this ended up being kind of the the crux of the of the uh, the battle with the government that the government insisted that they were a political organization rather than historical organization. And in fact, um, uh, history is politics, especially when you're trying to uh, uh, when you're trying to suppress so much of it. And I have to come back to that definition of Stalinism. There's such an entrenched culture of repression. Um, in post-Soviet Russia, that this has been made all the more possible. Um, we 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 mentioned transitional justice. There was there was a single opportunity actually just after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1992, uh, which, according to uh, Sergei Kavalyov, whom I interviewed, he was Yeltsin's uh, human rights commissioner and uh, also uh, a former gulag prisoner he was the only he was a former dissident he was the only um uh only former dissident who rose to a very high political position he told me that that could have been the russian nuremberg judging the crimes of communism uh it was about the constitutionality of a ban on the communist party it never got beyond the issue at hand so it failed completely in its mission and in a, in any larger mission that could have been conceivable. So what we had is a society that since the fall of a 70-year, since the end of a 70-year dictatorship, which claimed probably about conservatively estimated at 12 million lives, uh, not actually doing anything to properly confront the past and cracking down on grassroots organizations. And what's happening today in Ukraine shouldn't shouldn't actually surprise any of us if we've been listening for the last 15 years since 2005. It's a great country with a great past. Um, reconceptualizing history um, to, uh, um, to make this something that, you know, let's say Russia under attack, Russians under attack. We have to come in and save them. So this is, and, and cracking down on the media and censorship is also one way of keeping the public at least at a distance or making the public understand that it's not really safe to resist right now. 
Bill, kind of building on this connection with Ukraine and our discussion about anti-Nazism, I think it took some people by surprise when Putin was using this denazification rhetoric to justify um, assault on Ukraine. But it sounds like if we'd been paying attention to what was happening in Russia for the prior 15 years, we shouldn't have been surprised. Yeah, in a certain sense, it's Soviet speak. I mean, you you could say black is white or white is black, and that's and that's just the way it is. They were very early, um, very early, uh, uh, well, old Bolsheviks uh, who believed in the party so firmly that they would believe anything that the party said. In in a, in a certain sense, that is at least what the current uh, regime is trying to do. Um, in two thousand fifteen. I saw um, an exhibition at the Museum of the Revolution, uh, and it said Crimea, the story of its return, the story of its return. So kind of the heroic story of its return. You can take any narrative and reconceptualize it. As I said, if the bright future never arrived, because communism always promised a bright future, you can reconceptualize and change it into a bright past. Well, we, that bright future that communism was building on didn't arrive. But look, look at all we have done, and and so this is uh, this is what's happening today. Um, history is being instrumentalized uh, and uh, uh, abused. History is being abused. Uh, the 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 rhetoric, the the uh, the anti-Nazi rhetoric regarding um, Ukraine is um, is something that can only hold water because they are trying to completely control all channels of information regarding that. And I actually have understood, again, that some of my even very respected historian friends in Russia do subscribe to some of this stance. It's, it's, um, it's, they're being flooded uh, with misinformation, but, uh, but there are still there are still a lot of forces. If I can come back to to Memorial where I started, just because they've been eliminated, liquidated, and just because of the crackdown doesn't mean they'll stop their work. They are uh, they're dissidents, they're survivors, um, they're fighters, and they will also continue to try to expose um, the truth about past human rights violations and about present human rights violations. So, in a certain sense, knowing. Knowing the individuals I know and knowing the forces of civil society that I've come to know in the last 35 years, um, I have a little glimmer of hope in this very, very, very dark time for post-Soviet Russia. That, that's very nice to hear, uh, especially after marinating in some of this, um, not just the legacies of Stalin, but the, the current repurposing. I think this also helps listeners to understand why an argument about denazification is seen as virtuous and resonates positively in in Russian society. So on our my last question is to uh, ask you to think a little bit about how the volume potentially informs the current conflict in Ukraine. You mentioned um, 
Crimea. I'm thinking here about not just Russia's annexation of Crimea, but its decade-long targeted destabilization of Ukraine's east. You mentioned Russia saying it needed to go into to save Russian citizens in the east who are being persecuted. We even saw Putin use the word genocide against Russian citizens in a twist of, of the term here. Um, and also bringing it back to Russia's more aggressive posturing with the West over the past couple decades, uh, linking maybe that to Putin's great regret about the fall of the Soviet Union. Can you comment a little for us about how the most recent Russian invasion fits with its ongoing patterns of uh, managing and manipulating the past? You know, in a certain sense, even though I said we could have predicted it, it didn't fully fit. I mean, such aggressive posturing didn't fully fit. Uh, it, it did seem that it was mostly going to be about words and about marginalizing peoples and about uh, textbooks and about not not uh, giving proper recognition, uh, uh, not properly recognizing past crimes. It seemed that the pattern would just kind of continue continue on with that. Um, I can also I can also say as we're having this conversation that I have to think back, rather heartbreakingly, actually, uh, to my interviews in the mid-90s with gulag survivors who then were in their 80s and who were 90-plus. And they said that their hope was with the first graders at that time. So they were you know, kids who were, let's say, six or seven, who are today in their late 20s. And uh what a tremendous disconnect that ended up being because it's exactly these groups that seem to be following uh, Putinism and uh, um, uh, joining um, patriotic movements and supporting uh, a greater Russia with a great past and seeing seeing Ukraine as an enemy and seeing Russia as entitled to, to do this to defend, its interests because, you know, the victor in the great patriotic war and the greatest anti, anti-Nazi force uh, on earth and never compare Nazism with Stalinism. And if I think back uh, on these Gulag returnees who were so certain that that group born into a free Russia, uh, he said it would take a generation. So here we are a generation later and such a tremendous reversal in our expectations. Um, and, and I can say as, as, as analysts, and I'm sure I speak for all the colleagues of the volume and for, and for my co-editor, Anton Weiss-Vent, that there were a couple of moments that we thought we could have seen coming, but did not see coming. That was the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's this trend that we've signaled since 2005. The liquidation of Memorial, as I said, I spoke with the chairman uh, already in 2016. He said it just wouldn't be all that hard. But but seeing locked doors on the headquarters um, and, again, uh, um, arrested historians. Historians arrested for delving into Nazi, uh, uh, well, the Nazi past of some Soviet citizens 
it um, there's part of it that remains uh, unfathomable, even for someone who spent 35 years trying to analyze this. Well, I, I feel like your yours is a message of hope. And I like that as the way to maybe wrap up our podcast. Uh, I, I would like I would like to think that we are leaving with a glimmer of hope again, precisely because of those very strong civil society forces that will will not leave Russia, most of them, and will not be disbanded even if they don't have any real place to be um, doing their work together. Well, Doctor Adler. Thank you so much for your insights. This book is more timely than ever as we see the way history and memory are being actively used by Putin in his war in Ukraine. So uh, it has been so helpful to our readers or to our listeners. Uh, The book again, The Future of the Soviet Past, The Politics of History in Putin's Russia, I strongly encourage you to read it. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Dr. Horn, for for your careful reading and your uh, great questions. Really appreciate it. Also, on behalf of my co-editor, Anton Weisvent. Fantastic. Thank you.